Well, if you've been with us uh, last two weeks, you know that uh, we've begun a new sermon series, Jesus' Journey to Jerusalem, uh, as we head into Holy Week and, and prepare to celebrate uh, the glorious uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. And it's interesting, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem actually begins in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where we read these words, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now we know from the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, and as we saw last week in Luke chapter 18, Jesus predicts his crucifixion, making it very clear that his, his death on a cross was all a part of God's divine plan to help bring salvation to the world. But if you look at the entire Gospel of Luke, it's, it's kind of interesting that, well, the whole Gospel of Luke is, it's 24 chapters, and this journey to Jerusalem begins in Luke 9, 51, and it doesn't really end until about Luke 19, verse 37. Luke takes 10 of the 24 chapters of his gospel to talk about this journey to Jerusalem from Galilee to Jerusalem. And that's really only a distance of about 80 miles, which by foot would take less than seven days. But, but Luke wants to make sure that we capture every detail. There's, there's so much going on in this text. And, and in light of Luke's gospel, it's really odd that he would take that much time to talk about one journey. I mean, Luke's gospel, if you'll remember, it begins not with the story of Jesus' birth, but rather with his conception, his miraculous conception, right? Born of a virgin. It's an amazing story. And he tells the whole story of Jesus' ministry here on this earth and, until his ultimate resurrection. And in these 24 chapters, Jesus decide, or Luke decides to dedicate 10 of those chapters to this journey to Jerusalem. Why does Luke take so much time to describe Jesus' journey to Jerusalem? Did Jesus walk really slowly, maybe? I don't think it was a matter that Jesus walked so slowly, but rather it was a matter that, well, Jesus had so much to say, and there were people that, that Jesus needed to meet with. And so Jesus would take his time to make sure that he met with those who were journeying with him along the way. You know, it's interesting, uh, many of us are going through a study of John Ortberg's book, The Life You've Always Wanted. I think you should, I've got the old copy of it, but the new version, that's what the new version looks like. In the parlor, we were reading this book uh, at Wednesday nights at 6.30. You're welcome to join us. You do not have to have read in advance to come to the class. You can learn plenty through it. But John Ortberg points out uh, beautifully in his book about uh, Jesus' life and rhythm of ministry, he says this, Jesus often had much to do, but he never did it in a way that severed the life-giving connection between him and his father. He never did it in a way that interfered with his ability to give love when love was called for. He observed a regular practice of withdrawing from activity for the sake of solitude and prayer. Jesus was often busy, but never hurried. Does that describe you and me today? often busy but never hurried? Well, I'm often busy, but I'm afraid that I'm often hurried when I'm busy, right? I mean, this next couple of weeks, it's going to be real busy for me with Holy Week, Palm Sunday, of course, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, uh, Easter Sunday. There's a lot going on in the life of our church, and so I can find myself very, very busy with lots and lots to do. And when I'm busy, I'm usually in a hurry to try and get everything done. In fact, if you think about our culture here in America, we live in kind of a hurried culture, where we're focused on getting as much done as possible, hurrying our way from one thing to the next. 
For instance, have you ever been to New York City? Anybody? Okay, a few of us? Yes, most of us. That's great. You know, I've had the opportunity to go to New York City about a handful of times, and every time I go to New York City, I'm actually on vacation. But even though I'm on vacation, I find I'm in a hurry because everyone else is in a hurry, right? I mean, you're walking down the street. I'm trying to walk to Times Square. I've got plenty of time to see different sights and, and go to Broadway shows, but, but I'm walking quickly because everyone else is walking quickly. I don't want to get run over. When I get into a subway and I try to get onto the train in the subway, you know, I've, I've got to hurry on and I've got to hurry off, even though I'm not really in a hurry. I'm on vacation, right? I should be relaxed, but everyone else is in a hurry. That's kind of the way of our culture, not just of New York City, but, but all of life seems to be a, in a hurry here in the United States. But John Ortberg warns us and helps us see that even though Jesus was busy, he was never in a hurry. And then he writes this, hurry prevents us from receiving love from the Father or giving it to his children. That's why Jesus never hurried. If we are to follow Jesus, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Because by definition, we can't move faster than the one we are following. If we're following Jesus, we can't move faster than he would. And Jesus, he was busy. He said a lot. He did a lot. But he was never in a hurry. I believe Luke tells the story of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem because he doesn't want us to miss the fact that Jesus spoke and met with many people along the way, people whose life and eternity was changed because of these conversations. To see what I'm talking about, I would encourage you to turn in your, your Red Pew Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. Uh, I know that it can be found there in the Pew Bible, uh, verse, or page 1116. Luke chapter 19, verses uh, 1 to 10. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and hearing and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Luke to gather an orderly account of the life of Jesus and his wonderful ministry, giving us the details of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem from Galilee. God, I pray that as we read this familiar story that you might speak afresh and anew to us, that we might hear from you, that we might be changed at the reading preaching, and hearing of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse one, listen to God's word. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, growing up at the First Presbyterian Church in Midland, Texas, just about four hours south of here, I remember the story of Zacchaeus because I remember the song we used to sing about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Y'all remember that? And we had this hand gesture. This was it, like he was this tall. Like he was the size of a G.I. Joan figurine, right? Like that's Zacchaeus, right? What do we really know about Zacchaeus? Well, I can tell you he wasn't that small, right? He, he might have been small of stature, but what do we really know about Zacchaeus? Let's look again at our text this morning, verses 1 to 2. We read these words. Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, anyone hearing Luke's gospel read for the first time in the first century would have known three things based on what verse 2 has to say. First, they would have known Zacchaeus was Jewish because Zacchaeus is a Jewish name. Second, they would have recognized that he was a, a chief tax collector. The Greek word for chief tax collector is a very unique word. It's a very unusual word. It's not even used anywhere else in the Bible. Yes, Matthew was a tax collector, but he wasn't the chief tax collector. And Jericho was known as a, a center for collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government. So Zacchaeus was a, was a real leader if he was the chief tax collector. All the other tax collectors had to report to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, was also viewed as a, a chief sinner. A man who had betrayed the, the Jewish people by working for the occupying Roman government and doing what most tax collectors did, overcharging what was actually required. His tax collectors in the first century who worked for the Roman government did have an amount of tax they were needed or required to gather, but they would often collect more than was needed because the average citizen didn't know exactly how much they owed and they would take advantage of their ignorance and they would charge more than was needed. And this was most likely the case for Zacchaeus because he was described as a wealthy man. Yes, Zacchaeus, a Jewish man working for the occupying Roman government, was a chief tax collector, a chief sinner in Jericho that no one would have liked. That's why when Jesus is coming into Jericho, you know, and there's this kind of instant parade and people want to gather around to see Jesus and the crowd is, well, the crowd doesn't make way for Zacchaeus because nobody likes Zacchaeus. Nobody wants to be near Zacchaeus. Speaking of New York City, um, when my wife and I lived in New Jersey for a couple years, we had an opportunity to go to the Macy's Day Parade in New York City. It's an amazing parade. Now, we didn't have tickets, so we didn't get to sit in the stands. We just had to stand along the street. And even the people of New York, who aren't really known for their hospitality, were nice enough to let these two Texans have a, a place to stand to watch the parade, right? They let us scoot in or squeeze in so that we could get a good view because my wife's kind of short and people were kind. But, but nobody was kind to Zacchaeus because nobody wanted to be near Zacchaeus. And because he was short, he, he wasn't tall enough to see over the heads. So he had, to, he had to think creatively. And like the blind man in our text last Sunday in Luke 18, Zacchaeus is, is passionately persistent to see Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. And so he does the, 
kind of the unthinkable. He, he runs up a sycamore tree. Now, children would climb a sycamore tree, not a wealthy ruler, tax collector like Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus, he's passionately persistent in making sure he can see Jesus. And notice Jesus' response to Zacchaeus' efforts. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now this is the most unexpected invitation. I mean, Zacchaeus himself thought, well, I would just like to see Jesus. He doesn't expect Jesus to actually talk to him. In fact, if if he's up in a sycamore tree and there's any kind of leaves, chances are that Zacchaeus really isn't necessarily in Jesus' view of sight. And Jesus has many, many, many different people vying for his attention, trying to take them to his house. And and, and Jesus is very popular as he's been casting out demons and healing people and teaching the masses. And, And he has all kinds of opportunities to go stay in someone else's house. But he sees Zacchaeus. And as we read in verse 10, Because Jesus is seeking to save that which is lost, he reaches out to Zacchaeus and says, hey, I'm going to dine at your house today. As busy as Jesus was, as much as he had to do, he was observant and took time to attend to those in need around him. And Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, as a chief sinner, had a great need. Yes, it's unexpected that Jesus, who's on the way to Jerusalem, would notice Zacchaeus. Because when you're on the way to somewhere, when you're trying to get to a destination, the focus is on getting there, not the people you see along the way. You know, we're all on a journey, aren't we? I'm not talking about the journey you take every week to work from your house, or maybe to school, or maybe even to church here on Sundays. No, we're on a, we're on a bigger journey. It's a journey with Jesus if we know him. It's the journey of life. And at the end of our life, this journey with Jesus ultimately ends in paradise, in heaven, in our heavenly Father's house where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for each one of us who will call upon his name. And as I've had the opportunity to do several funerals lately, specifically for my own mother-in-law just a couple of weeks ago, I realized that this journey that we're on, it's shorter than many of us may think. At my mother-in-law's funeral in San Antonio, the family wanted us to read Psalm 90 and to preach on it, and so we did. Psalm 90 is one of the few psalms, in fact, it's the only psalm dedicated or written by Moses. And Moses, who lived to 120 years old, wrote this, teach us to number our days, Psalm 90, verse 12, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may get a heart of wisdom. And, and Moses points out that, you know, that if we're blessed, we get to live to 70 or 90, or 70 to 80. And my uh, mother-in-law was blessed to live to 79 years old. But this last Thursday, I had the opportunity to do a funeral for a woman who lived to 98 years old, Betty Jo Higgins. In fact, I think Shelley's in the back there. That's her grandmother. Got to do her funeral. And by all accounts, Betty Jo was a a faithful follower of Jesus. She was really a a model Proverbs 31 woman who who served her family diligently. You know, you read the Proverbs 31 story, uh, the description of that faithful wife of noble character and how she she, she sews clothes for her, her family members. And that's what Betty Jo did. She actually sewed the wedding dresses of her daughters and the bridesmaids' dresses. She cooked a lot. In fact, she helped run a restaurant business, you know. She, she served her family. She served her friends. And, and this past Monday... 
how she miraculously knew that she was going to see Jesus, she called her family members and said, I'm ready to see Jesus. Are you ready to see Jesus? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm kind of ready to see Jesus. <laughs> After these last couple of years, you know, it's, it's been tough. There's been a lot of stress, and, and I've actually begun to pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Because when Jesus comes back, he's going to make it all right. But the fact is, not everyone is ready to see Jesus. Because as we read through the Gospels, we'll see that Jesus lets us know that as we will recite here in a moment in the Apostles' Creed, that when he comes back, he's going to judge the living and the dead. We find this in Matthew 25, that he will separate the sheep and the goats like a shepherd does, and we'll have to give an account for what we did and how we lived our lives. And as we read the words of Jesus, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, we can see that ultimately what's going to determine our, our ultimate destiny for eternity is whether or not we know Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, we read these powerful words towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a troubling text. Because when was the last time you cast out a demon? I've never done that. And yet these men, these people, have been casting out demons, they've been prophesying the name of Jesus, and yet Jesus doesn't know them. They're doing this spectacular, possibly for attention-getting purposes, but they don't really do it for Jesus. They don't really know Jesus. Yes, I'm ready for Jesus to return, and you may be ready for Jesus to return, but, but many of our loved ones, many of our friends, many of our classmates, many of our coworkers, many of our neighbors don't yet know Jesus. They're not ready for his return. But the good news of our text in Luke 19 is that Jesus seeks us out, even if we're not ready for him. Let's look again at Luke 19. Now, as you read this text, specifically verse 4 to 5, it says, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for it was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And as we continue to read the text, we can see that Jesus explains, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, how did Jesus know that this man's name was Zacchaeus? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. He's fully God and he's fully man. And there's nothing that Jesus doesn't know about any of us. He knows our name. He knows where we live. He knows what we've done. Just as he knew what Zacchaeus had done and the sinner that he was, the chief tax collector, the chief of sinners. And yet, Jesus, Jesus invites himself to dine with Zacchaeus. He extends grace or God's unmerited favor to let Zacchaeus know that while no one else in this town likes you, I love you, Zacchaeus, and I want to be with you today. Now, in order for us to appreciate what Jesus does here in offering to dine with, uh, with Zacchaeus, we need to understand that in the first century, table fellowship was a really, really big deal, that who, whom you ate with was an indication of, of who you were. 
That if, you, that if you spent time with Jews, then it showed that you were a faithful Jew. But if you spent time with sinful Gentiles or, or tax collectors or prostitutes, people think, well, you must be a sinner as well. You are identified with whom you ate with. It's kind of like junior high. Anybody remember that? Junior high in the cafeteria? I went to this small Episcopal school in Midland called Trinity School. It's a great little school, very similar to St. Andrew's here. And I remember that we had these round tables that could only sit about six kids, at a, six chairs around a table. And, uh, and there were tables that were set aside for certain groups of the population. There was the, there was the jock table. The athletes sat at this table. And there was kind of the, the nerdy table. The more academic type sat at this table. And there was the pretty girl table and, and maybe the not-so-pretty girl table. There was all these different tables. And, and who you were determined where you sat. And, and I was fortunate enough to be an athlete, so I sat at the jock table. But most of my classes were actually with, with honor students. And so I was kind of in the nerdy table. So I was kind of a nerdy jock. I could kind of split between... Depending on the day, I could pick which table I sat at, right? Well, one day I was in line in the lunch line talking to my friend Jason, who was more than the nerdy herd group, I guess, and, and we were talking about baseball. And he was the statistician. He knew all kinds of statistics. And at the time, the Boston Red Sox, which is my favorite team, were playing the California Angels in the playoffs in 1986, if you remember that. We're talking about baseball. And, and, and as we get to the cafeteria to actually sit down after the lunch line, I sit down at my normal jock table, and I invite Jason to join me. Well, as soon as he sits down, one of my other teammates, my athletic friends, shows up and he says, Jason, what are you doing? Why are you sitting at our table? And I said, no, no, it's okay. He's with me. We're, we're talking about baseball. And he looked at my friend, looked at me, he said, I don't care, Howard. If he sits here, there won't be enough room for all of our teammates. Jason, you got to leave. Well, now, I wish I could tell you that at that time I had the spiritual maturity to recognize that I went to a Christian school and I could have quoted some version of Galatians 3.28 to my friend here and said, look, we go to a Christian school and in Jesus there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, nerdy or athletic. We're all one in Christ Jesus. He should sit here just like I can. But that's not what I did. What I was doing was I was looking at the table thinking, is there any way to add another chair? And in my delayed response, Jason said, hey, don't worry about it, Howard. I've got to go over here to talk about some algebra homework anyway. Don't worry, we'll catch up later. I failed my friend Jason because I was, frankly, I was a little worried about the social expectations of the lunchroom at the age of 13. Jesus could care less about social expectations. Jesus is on a mission. And yes, that mission is going to take him to Jerusalem where he's going to die a horrible death and pay the price for all of our sins together, and then rise again on the third day, conquering both sin and death on our behalf. But before he gets there, he's on a mission to seek and to save those whom are lost, to reach out to those who don't yet know him, who don't yet know what it means to be loved unconditionally by our God. And so Jesus graciously sees Zacchaeus and it would have been very easy for him just to keep on walking, to ignore Zacchaeus, because he wasn't in his line of sight. He's up in a tree, right? But he doesn't do that. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to eat at your house today. Letting Zacchaeus and all the community know that Jesus loves Zacchaeus. Because when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, he sees a child of the Most High God, a child of Abraham who's been created in the very image of God and he wants to let him know that I love you and I want to dine with you. I want to be associated with you because I care so much about you regardless of what others might say or think. And notice Zacchaeus' response to this invitation. We read in verse 6, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, 
I restore it fourfold. As you read just a moment ago in Exodus 22, you know, if you, if you steal a sheep, you've got re- you to return it fourfold. Zacchaeus has an amazing response to God's grace. In fact, as Presbyterians, it's very important for us to recognize that grace always precedes repentance. Grace always precedes repentance. Can you say that with me? Grace always precedes repentance. Jesus offers us his grace, his unmerited favor, his love before we repent. It's in response to God's grace that ultimately Zacchaeus repents and changes his life. And what a dramatic act of repentance to give half of what he had to the poor, to to pay back fourfold those he may have defrauded previously. What is God calling you and me to do in response to his grace? Does God want us to give half of what we own to the poor? Well, maybe. But one thing I know for sure, God wants us to seek and to reach out to those who are lost, just as Jesus did. Yes, we're all on a journey. And our journey next Sunday will take us to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. And then our journey is going to take us to the upper room on Monday, Thursday, and then to the Garden Gethsemane, and ultimately to the, the uh, Hill of Calvary on Good Friday. But eventually it's going to take us to an empty tomb. And what an opportunity we have at this time of year to invite a friend, to reach out to that loved one, or that neighbor, or that classmate, or that coworker who is very far from God, that, that maybe doesn't yet know the Lord who's heading down a a bad path, why don't we reach out to them and invite them to join us for the Easter celebration that Christ is risen? We want everyone to join us this Easter. What an opportunity we have to reach out to those who are lost this Easter season. May we take the time we need to prayerfully consider whom God may be calling us to reach out to. To pray, as we talked about last week, that beautiful Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As we humbly come to Jesus in that prayer, as we meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done for us, may we ask him to help us see how he is at work among us and who it is he's calling us to invite to join us this Easter. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, You are a God who loves us so much that you don't abandon us in our sin. No, you actually become one of us. And even though, Lord Jesus, you had so much to do and you were busy, you were never in a hurry. You took time to notice those around you on your journey to Jerusalem to offer them grace. Lord, help us to do the same. By your Holy Spirit, help us to see whom it is you want us to invite to join us this Easter, this Palm Sunday, this Monday, Thursday, this Good Friday, so that they might join us in the celebration. They might understand just how much you love them, regardless of what they've done. For you have shown your great love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Lord Jesus, you died for us. You paid the price for all of our sins together so that we might be reconciled to God once and for all, that we can receive this great gift of salvation simply through faith. So Lord, give us the eyes of faith to see whom we might reach out to this Easter season to invite them to join us on the journey with you. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son who is the Christ and all God's people said, amen.